Well, say it ain't so. Here we are, back on Turntables and T. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we will be uh, ending our Ocean's Calling kickoff uh, series with a look at Weezer's self-titled 1994 album, most often called the Blue Album, because Weezer has put out several self-titled albums, and so they're just referred to by colors. That's just uh, kind of what they do. But this is... um. Obviously the most well-known. This is that debut. It turns 30 years old next year, 1994. I never knew this was a self-titled album throughout my whole entire life. I thought it was truly titled The Blue Album. I swear to God. I saw that and I was like, get out of here. So you learn, I learned a bunch of fun stuff through this romp. But uh, yeah, that's one I never knew. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there was... um... It's always interesting to look at a debut album because you can learn so much about the formation of the band and what led up to it, which is always a lot of fun, in my opinion. So in the case of Weezer, they formed in L.A. in 1992, and they didn't start off real big because that's height of the grunge era. The stuff was happening a bit further up north in Seattle uh, rather than in L.A. But they did record a demo called The Kitchen Tape in November of that year, and that got them the attention of none other than Geffen Records, who owned DGC Records, best known as the home of Nirvana. And sure enough, Weezer had a deal on Nirvana's label. So great start for the band, actually, to be getting that kind of backing. I think. Most definitely. That's the dream story right there. Oh, we're going to cut a demo and get found and and the rest is history. That's what you want to (laughs) do. Yeah, that it most certainly is. And uh, it was recorded at Electric Lady Studios. And um, it seemed like the band was interested in producing the album themselves. Because why not? But uh, Geffen said, no, you should actually choose a producer. But the good news is they chose one with some serious cred. Uh, Rick Ocasek, leader of the Cars. Uh, the Cars were not not a functioning band by the early 90s. They had broken up. But Mr. Ocasek was still active. And with a band with as much 70s rock influence as Weezer, Ocasek was really an ideal producer for them. I mean, it's hard to imagine the album without him. And he did end up producing for them like again 20 years later which i actually don't know that album i think it's everything will be all right in the end Hmm. i don't know all the songs but it was um i think it was their most well-received album critically in quite some time uh and i think a lot of that can be said to okay because not everything since then has been as well received especially not critically but also commercially but we are uh, getting ahead of ourselves. So um, basically, 1993 bands recording the album. And during the recording of this album, Jason Crocker, Jason, I'm sorry, Jason Cropper, not related to Betty Crocker, not cookbook here. Um, He was the band's guitarist at this point in time, but he found out that his girlfriend was pregnant. And it was a dilemma for him. And he just really began acting out of character and just became really unreliable. And uh, he was even like up on the roof of Electric Lady Studios where the album was being recorded. It just was not great. And the leader of the band, Rivers Cuomo, did have to say, like, you gotta go. This isn't working. You're really hurting us right now. And... uh, you, if you want to stay with us, you gotta stick to it. And so Cropper was fired from the band, and he wasn't initially too happy about that, but in hindsight did actually admit that he thought Rivers Cuomo made the right decision by letting him go, which not something you hear every day from members of bands that get terminated. (laughs) That's for sure. And it sounds so tough. You know, it sounds like Cuomo you know, had no heart inside of it. it sounds so cutthroat, but on the same side of the coin, uh, that coin being them in that dream sequence of getting, you know, a demo out there getting picked up and being inside of their dream. That's a scary thing when you see 
you know, you record an album and you see one of the band members just go off the deep end. That's a tough call. That's a tough call. Kudos to him for making that call, recognizing it and making it. Kudos to all of them for still being cool about it. But I feel like I would have to think that understanding comes inside of, of course, a few years away from the situation, but more so looking at yourself and being like, yeah, I was going crazy. And this was, you know, the, the one shot, especially right then and there. Uh, a tough decision, but had to be made. Yeah. And I'm, Cropper has even played with the band on some occasions, even in very recent years. So there is no bad blood. It's And he even said, you know, it's kind of interesting to be known as the Pete Best of my generation, even though much less bitter than Pete Best was. but <laughs> And on top of that, Cuomo came back in there and said, I'm going to cut the whole entire guitar part again. Um, and they were like, no way. And I, I was reading. This one blew my mind. He came in one take, cut the whole album, which is wild. <laughs> you yeah. know, I don't, I don't care who you are. Uh, I don't know if it was Ocasek or Geffen or them together being like, no, 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 no. That's not what we should it do was okay sure sick, from what i read there you go he said no I you mean, can't do that <laughs> yeah he was like watch me in one take yeah <laughs> that is insane. and i mean yeah it's hard to have ever imagined half that something like that ever happening in the cars that's for sure so no wonder right. rick okay so it was like no way are you doing this but it ended up working out very well for them and so then uh it just keeps going. And this album, we get a cover of these men against a blue background, including the new guitarist, Brian Bell. And, uh, well, yeah, history, the rest is history. The album was released in May of 1994, and uh, it didn't, it wasn't the biggest album in the world, like, at any point during this run, but it certainly did well for itself. It made it up to 16 on the Billboard 200, which is not bad, especially not for mid-1990s, but it was a steady seller, and uh, its reputation's only grown over the years. Um, it's gone triple platinum in the U.S. at this point, so over three million copies sold. It's still their highest-selling album, uh, and... Uh, it's not hard to see why, I guess. Now, I know this, uh, Corey, this is one of your very all-time favorites that you, I'm sure, remember from back when it was a contemporary album. <laughs> yeah, I, this was, this stays up there inside of my favorite albums of, of all time. Going back to 94, though, I didn't own the album. Um, I didn't have this album in my full listening collection until my freshman year of high school which was two years later and looking back on it i was listening to, i was listening to a lot of grunge sounds back then but more so buddy holly hit and when buddy holly hit and and had the mtv uh video it was at least in the seventh and eighth grade realms or the younger listening realms that I was in, it was a very polarizing hit period because you'd get this one side of, of people being like, Oh, what is that little poppy cookie cutter nonsense? Ha ha ha. They're doing the happy days thing. I ain't listening to that crap. And I fell into that. You know, I was like, I, I remember poking fun at buddy Holly as a song. I hadn't really found myself as a guitarist at that point. I was just learning about myself inside of music, too. So I didn't dive into this album until freshman year. Uh, a buddy of mine who really molded a lot of the different things that I listened to and, and opened my eyes to a lot, dropped this on me. And I made the comment of like, oh, what are we going to listen to Buddy Holly? And he was like, clearly, you've never listened to this album. And I was like, no, I definitely haven't. And it's as we say it's history from there i i don't think i put this album down for a good four or five months i just i wanted to play it all i wanted to be able to hear everything i wanted to pick it apart I, we'll, we'll definitely get into it I, I won't i won't give the whole thing away but i was blown away i it was just it was a sound 
I won't say it was a sound that I had never heard, but it was so, this might sound crazy, but it was so polished inside of its dirtiness that it spoke to me and I was, I, I was, I was blown away. I, my mind was officially blown by this album on my original first listen through of this one. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways we are seeing this nineties fight version of the sound of a band like the cars or cheap trick or like those early influences. And uh, I mean, we've covered quite a few grunge albums on this show and this is very different from that. Uh, some of the it has some of the same lyrical tenets to an extent, but the sound is much brighter than anything that would have been done by some of their label mates, for instance. Yeah, and, and that was Ocasek's doing. He was the one that that finally got them to switch their pickups, uh, you know, from the neck to the bridge there, which gave them that really bright sound. I'll say, and and I I read this and and learned this in this uh breakdown but Cuomo was really adamant about these uh only downstrokes on the guitar and really treating the guitars and the bass as as one 10 string instrument so to speak and that back then in the early days before I listened to the whole album especially in Buddy Holly were things that pushed me away you know because it and I'll probably say this a million times but on your first listen it sounds there are parts of this album that can sound very cookie cutter to someone who's not really listening if you're just hearing the song it's gonna sound almost commercial a little bit in its cookie cutterness uh in my opinion so that's that's a little bit of the reason a little bit more of the reason why i didn't gravitate to this in my early listening years yeah and there was a lot more to the album actually than just the big hit singles off of it there was more there and uh it just it's so crazy because this it was released a bit before i was born but actually the weezer hit of my childhood was beverly hills that was and that actually is their like biggest pop radio hit ever it's their only only time they reached the top 10 on the hot 100 and so and i like that song i still do like it it was one that i grew up with but i didn't know about this band really outside of that i actually learned the two big hits by playing the mobile game versions of Rock Band and Guitar Hero. I didn't have the whole game, but I could tap my fingers to play the songs. And that was how I learned uh, Buddy Holly and Say It Ain't So. And it's like, oh, wow, this band, there's a they have more songs that I that go back before um, Beverly Hills. So that was pretty cool to find out. And I did like them enough that I bought this CD uh on my uh, before I had any streaming or anything I just bought the CD and it was one of the best CD purchases I made that's for sure yeah we've talked about it a bunch not much of their catalog after this and my head over heels for the Beverly Hills thing is almost in my mind the reverse or, or actually really what happened with the Buddy Holly you know it was that Buddy Holly effect where it was way too poppy. I didn't dig it, except this time going at that album. I just, it wasn't my favorite. Maybe one day we'll talk about the later catalog, but I don't, I, for me, in my opinion, and I said it last week, so I don't mind saying it again. It's just, I don't think they ever reached this height in an entire album, the rest of their catalog. I, I, that's not an uncommon opinion. I know there is definitely a cult of fans that love the Pinkerton album, but. Uh, yeah. I, that's a very different album from this one and uh, I know you're not the biggest Pinkerton fan and I certainly no. per, I don't dislike it by any means but I certainly wouldn't put it on the level of this one and I've so I've actually seen this band several times live because I have a good college friend who loves this band too and I mean this is always the most represented album each time I've seen them over half of the songs on the blue album have been played because it has in many ways come to define their legacy in a lot of ways and i think the band is okay with that because uh, there's just been yeah. a lot of very mixed reviews of what they've done since some of it actually just mostly flat out negative and uh, it was really interesting 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This past tour that I went to, which they did called the Indie Rock Road Trip, and it definitely saw them going away from, I guess, the memification of the band the past few years, like with the Toto Africa cover. That was really big, 2018, 2019. Um, And just all the set lists were Blue Album heavy, but this one... Like, they even were doing some songs you just wouldn't have expected them to do even just off of this album. They were really going back into, like, we're a serious band. We are going to do the poppy, like, Beverly Hills, of course, because that was a huge hit. And we'll do Island in the Sun and Hashpipe. But I felt like they were definitely going more towards what they want to be known for, I guess, which is this, which I think is quite telling and... I'm thinking we'll be getting some of that in their festival set, which I think is overall a good thing. I don't hate the covers by any means. I think they're fun, but this is Weezer. Just play the Blue Album. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but it'll be awesome regardless, but it's great to hear that the Blue Album songs still have their place in their sets. There's There's a yeah. hunger behind this album that cannot be denied. Yeah, not maybe honestly with the anniversary next year, who knows? There may very well be a one-off or residency or tour or whatever of just them playing the album back the front and then a, another set. I think it's very possible. Bring it to the sphere. Yeah. Weezer at the sphere. Come on, Weezer. Bring the blue album to the sphere. I mean, <laughs> I think that the I think the demand for this would be that would be quite high <laughs> and uh, I, I gotta agree I gotta agree there I don't see why it wouldn't be because uh I mean this album it's often it is now regularly considered an all-time great we were talking last week it's like will this grade be too biased I said well Pitchfork did actually give it a 10 out of 10 and so I mean, it's been pretty regarded at this point. It's definitely a high point of the 90s, which I completely agree with. This is definitely, this might be my favorite rock album of the 90s, actually. We've done a few, but I think this is it for me in terms of 90s rock albums. Not counting, like, a live album of old songs, that is, because, at least, because I do love the dance which we talked about, but we're we're not there yet, so. Nope, it's a banger. That it is, and uh, with that being said, I think we're ready to get into the track by track like we do here. Let's do it. All right, so the album begins with My Name is Jonas. Uh, It was inspired by um, Rivers Cuomo's brother, Leaves. Yes, actually his name. His name is Leaves, and... uh, a car accident he got into uh, dates back to like 91, 92. Um, the acoustic intro was written by Jason Cropper, so he got a writing credit for it, which I'm sure did uh, pay some bills for him. I'm sure that was, uh, it wasn't all bad. At least he did get a credit on one of the album's most popular songs. Um, I mean, really though, just that awesome sound of it all it just really kicks off in a great way and just gets you going and uh, i don't know it's just one of those songs you just get get a great feeling every time you hear it yeah i mean starting off with that acoustic riff that that riff is a an earwig in itself but what we'll find out on this album to start this album with an acoustic riff is is pretty mind-blowing it it gives us a tiny little glimpse into these hungry artists and these guys who are guitar nerds these guys who are really at one with their sound because they seamlessly blend this little acoustic intro into some pure adrenaline i mean at 149 well the, the crescendo build and then 
you know, and we'll see this crescendo throughout the album. It's really, in my opinion, one of their their defining characteristics is the way to move the song with these beautiful crescendos. But it's just it ends up in pure adrenaline. I mean, at two twelve, you got everything and a harmonica into this manic, crazy point, and it's still spot on. Uh, a hell of a way to start an album. Most definitely. And uh, it's also a great way to start a concert. I'm thinking this might be the set opener because it was the opener of the show I went to um, this year. And it hasn't been for every show, actually. But I was happy to hear that it was. It was a great way to open a show. Yeah, man. Get up in the pit for this one. Throw your body (laughs) around and get wild. (laughs) Because this one this one will get you going. Uh, It would be a hell of an opener. It definitely is. But it's not the only song here that is a hell of an opener, actually. But we'll get to that. But uh, we're going to move on to track two now, which is No One Else. Um, This one, it's kind of like he's he's really a manipulative, controlling boyfriend and just has to know what this woman's doing at all times. No one else can have her. And really, honestly, very dark lyrics, but I think it's pretty obvious that it's tongue-in-cheek. And the sound of it's very bright, and it's a great contrast that I really enjoy. And this song, uh, more than any on the album, actually reminds me of The Cars. Just in its sound. This is that one. And just that, again, that juxtaposition of the dark tongue-in-cheek lyrics with this really bright, somewhat poppy sound but um yeah i've always really enjoyed this one as well uh i think it's a great second track too uh it like keeps what we were it it gives us more of what we're expecting i think after the first track sound wise and it's a sound you want to return to so i like no one else yeah and getting ahead of myself if it wasn't track two what we get in track three and track one really would have blended together sonically and almost at times not be discernible. But as far as this one goes, man, we do, we get our first real beautiful look at this quirky tongue in cheek is the perfect way to put it. This almost dark humor. This is that, that is uh, laid throughout this album. (laughs) You know, he wants a girl that will laugh for no one else. It is, it is the worst way to try to to you know keep somebody in a relationship and through this genius tongue in cheek we have a chance to laugh at it inside of this song because it doesn't you know it sings with with this comedy i've always loved that about this song that and the solo in this one is really unlike what we were hearing back then and it's still it for me it always gives a shout to how awesome these guys were with their instruments. You know, they, they do these simplistic sounding solos, but they really shape a composition with them. And this is our first chance of seeing that. Um, it sits perfect in that second spot. It most definitely does. And as you mentioned, it does actually go quite nicely into the next song. And according to many, it does, which is, the world has turned and left me here. Um, a lot of people think of this as a sequel to No One Else, but yeah. No One Else was actually written quite a bit after this song, possibly up to a year later. But the sequencing, I'm sure, was intentional. It's been said that this is more so the boyfriend in the previous song being dumped and kicking himself about it, saying the world has turned and left me here. Uh, So really continuing that. And um, I mean, I enjoy this one as well. But one thing I do want to say, actually, I think this song might be. So this band has actually been called Emo. And this album has been called like a precursor to the Emo sound. And I wasn't quite sure I fully got that. I never thought of this really as an emo band. And I'm guessing a lot of it might have to do with this song in particular out of just the songs on this album. Uh, Not that it's the only somewhat depressing title or lyric, but I think maybe people are missing 
the point, kind of, I guess. Because I've never thought of this as an emo band. I think they have too much of a sense of humor to be like that whiny emo band. I mean, they came up about big at the same time as Green Day, but I think Green Day's much closer to being emo than this band is. That's all I'm saying. I'm right with you. This is what I was talking about before, where a lot of this album, in my opinion, can be heard. And if you're not listening, it can, I'm not even saying just misconstruing lyrics. I'm just, it just sonically, it can sound like something totally different if you're not really listening to it. And I, I would have to think that's the only way, because for me, this is always, like you said, that, that sequel, the sequel type of, of follow-up here where even, I mean, this is why for me, it's still this beautiful comedy and this beautiful tongue in cheek, because even at the end of this song, when you get the background vocals singing, do you believe what I'm singing now? It's this guy looking for validation because he's doing this martyr role after he tried to really hold on to this girl in the wrong way. And I always loved the the joking manner of that. So if I guess that could be misconstrued as sad emo, but I've never seen it. Uh, this is definitely that breakup song. This is another one of those beautiful solos where it's so unique, but it's so unique with using so little. It just really hits a lot harder. It's genius composition throughout this album, but especially when we see these non um traditional solos and uh, the way they handle the composition um this this is this is that joint this <laughs> i feel like i'm gonna repeat myself for every track but going into pacing we haven't really lost a step we've almost picked up a step or two as far as the push on this album and we're gonna go into another straightforward banger you know yeah i will say of so this will actually be my fourth time seeing Weezer at this festival uh, of songs that I have not heard before that I want to hear this time. This is at the top of my list. This one I have not heard them do at any of the shows I've been to. I did see it on the set list this year, though, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I would love to hear this one. Hell yeah. So, oh, man, it's a good song. It is. But yep, we are going into another straight ahead banger. The the one, Buddy Holly. It's not about the singer Buddy Holly, but he's used to make the point. So this song was written because Rivers Cuomo, he had a girlfriend who happened to be Asian, and some of his friends were making fun of that. And so to kind of illustrate how he was feeling, yeah, he decided to say, well, I look just like Buddy Holly, you look like Mary Tyler Moore. Uh... So we're going to reference great pop culture icons and uh, automatically, I mean, again, just after all the stuff we were listening to in the alt-rock world um, from this time period already, this is so different <laughs> from all of that. And uh, funny enough, Rivers Cuomo didn't think much of the song. He kind of thought, oh, it's just a silly song. But Rick Ocasek said, no, you have to put it on the album like oh, Matt Sharp, the bassist, actually said, Rick said, you would have to be an idiot to not put it on the album. And, uh, well, he was right, because um, this is possibly, probably Weezer's signature song. This is the one that people think of. And uh, as you said, a lot of that has to do with the video was very popular. And um, I love the video. Yes, it is set as though they are playing that Arnold's Drive-In from Happy Days. Uh, we even got Al from the show making a cameo appearance and clips from the show interspersed and even had it done as though the Fonz was dancing to the song. So, but if it's good enough for the Fonz, I think it's good enough for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. It, that was the Buddy Holly effect, though, that I was talking about in the, the younger generation, at least. It was like, it was on MTV every four videos. <laughs> like, it was always on. And, you know, when, when you're inside, or when I was inside of that grudge scene, looking at a video like, like when Nirvana came out, 
uh, in the Ed Sullivan or, or, you know, just looking at people taking those seventies uh, takes immediately you get happy days and it just, it feels so poppy in a time where we, we didn't want to feel, or I didn't want to feel poppy. Uh, but you know, the grunge movement was, was not about that at all. Um, looking back and, and, you know, how I've done through the years with this one, this is, it always sits like a guilty pleasure to me because of that, you know, like I've never, ever lost that. Like, Oh, this is that poppy song. But what they do inside of this song musically, when you break it down, is astonishing. I mean, even down to this, you know, this fight between you and your boys about them dissing your girl. And he they're adding in like the old uh, Wild West, do you, you, or, you know, they're, they're playing with this cookie cutter-esque composition and really taking it to the next level. Again, if you're not listening, and you're just hearing these tracks they they're they're gonna do their job regardless but they're they always for me just sat a little too poppy uh especially this one if you're not listening well big part of why this might have been so poppy was because of none other than mr david geffen himself he uh he did his thing to make this accessible to everybody so actually on this video uh, Anson Williams, who played Popsy on Happy Days, actually objected to footage of him being used in the video. And really? I was really surprised to learn this. He shut up once David Geffen sent him sent him a letter, which was probably a quite threatening letter, because David Geffen <laughs> can even get Ron Howard to shut up. Let's be real. Because, <laughs> yeah. David Geffen is not somebody you want to be messing with. He is that guy, and people are scared of him. He's notorious for his ways. And behind the band's back, he also, I just learned this, he got the video for this song included on Windows 95. There you go. <laughs> it was the one media player track. I think I remember that, actually. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the band wasn't thrilled about it at first, but then they were like, well, it was like kind of like YouTube and you're the only video there, so it was kind of great. <laughs> didn't didn't Apple do that with U2 later on? That I think a, they did. That was not as well received, though. <laughs> <laughs> it was just put on everyone's phone, a new U2 album. Yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. U2 lost so much goodwill from that. <laughs> David Geffen will play. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Geffen was involved with the U2 decision, though. I heard that. Well, another big player doesn't play, but... <laughs> Bono doesn't play either. That's real shit. <laughs> I'm I'm guessing we won't be hearing any of the songs of Innocence at the uh, at their Spear residency. Is <laughs> my guess. It, it's okay, though. We're not here to talk about you too. We're still talking about Weezer, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I love the song. I think it's just a really just that great, well constructed song, and I've loved it since the first time I heard it, and I keep going back for more. So, yep. What what else is there to say? But we are into one classic and on to another, which is um, Undone, the sweater song, which was actually the lead single from the album. It didn't make as big of a splash as Buddy Holly, but it did come out first. And um, Rivers Cuomo described this as being about the feeling you get when the train stops and the little guy comes knocking on your door. It was supposed to be a sad song, but everyone thinks it's hilarious, which... I mean, when you're talking about destroying a sweater, it's hard not to think that's funny, but... Especially lying naked on the floor, you know? Yes! Especially, I always took it as it was the dude who was, like, trying to be cool and get invited to the backstage parties. Like, you hear all that narration. I always figured it was his sweater getting torn apart. I... <laughs> but it was not originally called the sweater song. Um, that part was added because... Fans at the early shows kept calling it that sweater song. <laughs> so there I mean, we have it. Yeah, that, that's a tough one, especially if you got nothing to go off. I also read that 
uh rivers cuomo doesn't like the way he thinks that titles with parentheses look ugly so that's why he chose just use the dash and i thought that was really awesome like that just shows it's that extra level of hunger that i keep talking about these young boys came up they were like we, we're gonna produce this like no 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 you're not gonna produce this like well we're only gonna do downstrokes like whatever man like i'm gonna re-record the whole entire guitar part in one take you, they they knew what they wanted <laughs> that they did that they did and um but this is also the most atmospheric song on the album of course there is a lot of spoken word in that mix too <laughs> but yeah. this is some mind-boggling stuff here so when writing this, the intent was actually to write a Velvet Underground type song, which, yeah. no, but Ben Rivers actually ended up saying it ended up being an inadvertent ripoff of Metallica's Welcome Home Sanitarium, which I just don't hear. I, I read that this go through and like challenged myself to pick it out of it, and I I can't find it at all in there. No. I mean, the band, he said the band had its metal roots, but I still, I don't hear it at all. Yeah, we we hear it, I, in my opinion, we hear it later on in the album, but not here. Not, not, I, uh, we're still in that, in that sort of punky sound here, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, though it still doesn't sound like the Velvet Underground by no. any stretch of the I might be wrong, but I thought I read that he was like, yeah, I failed at that. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I tried, but no, it didn't work out. <laughs> it's okay, Rivers. We we don't need you to be Lou Reed. Because <laughs> you, you could have, co you didn't collaborate with Metallica and make an album called Lulu, often called one of the worst albums ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, man. Um, yeah, this is just... I mean, I think it's another rightful classic song, and it did have an MTV video. It was actually one of the first directing efforts from Spike Jones, and um, it was done with a steady cam and kind of just showed the band being goofy, but a well-known enough video that the band paid homage to it when they did their video for their cover of Toto's Africa. <laughs> um, that was the thing, which... Smart decision right there. Um, yeah. But, yeah, this is one every time they do live under Silly, but it's always a fun song to hear live as well. Uh. There, there's always been a power in this song for me, too. Like, when it finally gets to the screaming at the end, there, it's just one that I've never been able to not scream along with. I, I listened to it right before we started recording tonight. It's just one of those ones that to this day, I will scream the whole way through. I don't. I, I. It's always sung to me like that, and I. I don't know why. I. I. You know. I don't know why. I learned so much reading about this one. Just going through one thing, I did read that I loved, and this is like almost what I've been saying this whole time. Um, Tom McGin Tom McGinnis for all music wrote. Uh, the song is not only meticulously crafted; it's smart poignant and insanely catchy all characteristics that would go on to define Weezer as a band and it's so true like this is such an out there premise for a song and it to me it really doesn't stumble musically but it stumbles around behind stage accentuated by this narrative this this spoken narrative that we're getting uh little snapshots into it's it's such a crazy beautiful piece it's unlike any other piece really um it, it's it's so unique it's such a good yeah. way uh, you know it's right almost uh, yeah right at the middle point of this album you know the exact middle point and uh, it fits so well it fits so well the pacing is so phenomenal still on this at track five yeah, and actually with that, we're at our midway point of the album. So before we move on to the second half, I think this is a good time to let you all know that if you're not already, please subscribe to us wherever you're listening to us and give us a nice rating. That would be appreciated. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Turntables Tea. Uh, 
definitely check the Instagram, especially because um, I'll be at the Ocean's Calling Festival this weekend and I'll be posting photos and videos of songs from bands like Weezer and other acts we've talked about, like Alanis Morissette and John Mayer. While I'm here, uh, I'm really excited for it. It'll be my big vacation this year, so... It'll be a good one, and I can't wait to share it with you all on our social channels. Yeah. So with that being said, we're now on to our second half of the album with track number six, which is Surf Wax America, uh, somewhat inspired by the Beach Boys song about surfing, even though none of the band had actually ever surfed before, um, according to uh, Patrick Wilson. Um, This is the last song he actually has a co-writing credit for on this album. This is mostly a one-man writing kind of thing, actually, with Mr. Cuomo doing most of it. But, um, yeah, this is another one. I mean, it's a pretty silly, lightweight song about just having a good time in its own way. It's, you take your car to work, I'll take my board. But, I mean, the best part of it is you think it's over, after like two minutes and then at bridge point it just goes silent and then we just creep back in the full throttle we're going surfing we're going surfing and uh, yeah i've always loved the, this song um it's a pretty frequent set closer for them actually and uh it's a good one this is one to get you hyped up for sure and uh, this will just be a ton of fun to listen to on the beach that's all i know i can't wait <laughs> Oh, you know it. For I could definitely see it as a set closer. For me, it was always, even though it was a CD when I was listening to it, for me, it was always really reminiscent and flipping over to the second side of the album here. Uh, they do this beautiful thing that they did back in Jonas where they almost trick us into thinking we're going to hear a different style of song uh, with this opening riff, which in this case is this beautiful surf guitar, this this beautiful surf sound guitar that goes into another straight, really adrenaline-filled banger. I always love this one. Uh, you were saying nobody had ever surfed. This one always screamed to me like that. This one was always the one where it, I, I always loved this because it felt like I was right along side of him fantasizing about the surfers that got to give it all up you know he says it like you know they, they're not doing the rat race they're out there doing their thing uh, i i've always enjoyed that mentality uh and especially fantasizing and, and living vicariously through what i think is the surf life i could see that i this song always delivered so awesomely with its narrative for me um <laughs> it's just a good one it's a, it's a really great song and like you said we see that beautiful defining characteristic of their ability to crescendo and decrescendo so seamlessly inside of these songs and really give them another layer of of depth yes most definitely i've never surfed before either and <laughs> so i think it i think this song really does uh speak to those of us who would never surf i know i I have no plans on doing that. I'm scared shitless of a big wave that'll just eat me up and you'll never hear from me again. I'll be lost at sea. Um, Because hell no, I'm not surfing. <laughs> hell no. It is wild. But uh, it, it can't all be that lightweight. Sometimes we do have to get a bit heavy. And we do on our next song, which is the one and only Say It Ain't So... Um, this song was actually inspired by Rivers Cuomo's really strained relationship with his father. Um, he specifically wrote it after he saw beer in his stepdad's bridge. He thought like his parents were his stepparents were gonna split up because he thought alcoholism was why his parents had split up. That didn't end up being the case, and uh, Rivers and his father did actually reconcile in the mid '90s. So. Um, that's always good to hear that it's not still terrible with your father because, well, family's important, uh, whether you want to admit it or not, it is. But uh, yeah, the anger in this song is just all the way there and you just can't help but scream along to it. But because uh, it's got a monster of a chorus, 
major guitar riffs. This is, there's a reason I played this on Guitar Hero, even if it was just on my dad's iPad. This is that kind of song, if you want to be a guitar hero, because it's Gala. And it was a very obvious single choice. It was the third single. And most of these songs didn't chart on the Hot 100, but on airplay and alternative charts or whatnot. But they still really made their impact. And there was a video for this, but saw the band playing in the garage they started out in, which was a smart move, I think, to show that, yes, we're a silly band who played on the set of Happy Days, but we are also legitimate musicians and you should take us seriously. And I think a simpler video, especially for a song such as this, really helped solidify that image for them. I think this, I, I wasn't there, but I would imagine it did a lot for having this band be taken seriously and not just the one-hit wonders singing about Buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore and sweaters or whatever. Um, I mean, this one, it's a sincere song, but it's a great one. I mean, it just goes off every time, and it's a great song live. He doesn't have to sing. He has the crowd sing that Say It Ain't So for him. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, I failed to say it in Surf Wax America, but I always used to think that this was the same guy all the way through this album. So for me, this is this guy taking off and finding himself. And in Say It Ain't So, that anger, man, it has never been more true. I, you feel it so much. You know exactly where he's going. And it's backed up by this just insane... The first two words I have in my notes are garage band because this was that garage band sound. This was that angry in the garage making music, yelling at your dad kind of sound. And it's done to perfection here. Yeah, 246, just the drums. Ah, I, I, I love them so much. But at 318 in this song, Hot Tea Take, this is some of the most beautiful guitar pieces we get on the album. Um, this is just such a beauty. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And even though it's angry, it's it's such a beautiful thing. I love to hear that they reconciled. And I hope that, you know, this song was cathartic for him and really let him say what he needed to say out loud and, and bring it back home with his, with his dad. That's awesome because that's exactly what this song always has screamed literally and figuratively but you know now knowing that that's hopefully what it was planned to do is is amazing this is a this is a great one i've played this live before and there is so much ah, there's so much raw beauty inside this song yes a true banger indeed but speaking of garage bands that's perfect a uh, transition to our next song which is <laughs> In the garage, and yes, this band did start in the garage, so this is an ode to the garage, specifically his. We've got, it's his area with his Dungeons and Dragons and his Kiss posters. Uh, oh, I love that. Um, yeah, it's just, but it's, even if you're not a musician in the garage, I think this is a really a relatable song for anybody who's ever felt misunderstood, because I first heard this when I was like high school age, but I really related to it because I felt like you know I didn't feel always understood by my peers so it was nice to have my own area where I can have like my uh posters or whatever and my cds and all that with kiss being one band I was into at that time still do like kiss though don't get me wrong but um I think it's just really relatable to that and uh Pitchfork even called this the defining song of nerd rock which I mean, sums it up uh, pretty well. But it also, again, I this is another one that really sound-wise gives me that Cars vibe. Um, and that's obviously in large part thanks to Rick Ocasek. And that helps, I think, 
make it appeal to those, even if you don't relate to the lyrics. It's got that sound that is really infectious, and uh, you just have to love it. I remember when I first saw this band in 2018, this was like the one song I'm like, I'm not sure if they're going to do In the Garage, but it was that album track I just really wanted to hear. And it was one of the first songs that they did on the Happy Days set, actually. (laughs) That was the opener for the first time. It was a Buddy Holly after a Happy Days intro. That was pretty awesome opening, too. But hearing this shortly after was icing on the cake for me. And I didn't hear it last time, but I think it should be played at every Weezer show ever. Yeah, it's it's another great, beautiful jam. This is another really cool song that has always sung out to me for lack of better words more so the harmonica intro here always for me had a bit of youngness a bit of a bit of look back um and i always took this song as that as as this guy who we've been watching go through breakup and and freaking out and maybe finding himself you know this guy looking back on his safe safe place You know, he's got his kiss posters. He's got his 20-sided dice, but he's safe in the garage. And it loses the the youngness, the childishness of the composition for me in a great way as, as this song builds. The harmonica and the guitar mimic each other uh, inside of this song, which is really, for me, where the, uh, the gap is bridged, so to speak, from this look back now into this um introspective way this song moves forward and i've i've always loved that this is it's this one here the solo inside this one here for me speaks more traditionally but it still has that weezer sound and when you break it down it is a genius piece uh and in the garage man this this is one that never fails to bring a giant smile uh, if I'm not already grinning ear to ear when <laughs> when this album is played, but this is it. It just it feels good. It feels good. It has a a real way, a real relatability at at least for me to it. And it's it's a, and it's a genius composition on top of it. Yeah, in the garage, you can't go wrong with it. But we're we're going to continue that theme of escapism a bit with uh, our penultimate song, which is. Holiday, which, yep, it's a song about getting away from it all. This one was specifically inspired by both the Beach Boys and the writer Jack Kerouac. Um, So, all right, this is definitely a gun to the head, but if there is a gun to the head, least favorite, I am going to say it's this song. And the only reason for that is it's not because it's a bad song. It's a well-done composition. It's pleasant to listen to. It's got some punchiness to it. It's just not as unique as the other songs here, because this is a trope you hear in a lot of songs. It's not even an uncommon song title, Um, frankly. I can think of more than one song called Holiday, besides this one. And uh, it doesn't get played live very often these days. Um, And out of all the songs on this album, I can see why, but that doesn't mean it's a bad song at all. It's a perfectly serviceable Weezer song. Uh huh. I mean, it's probably better than like many other Weezer songs, I would think. Um, I don't know every single one, but I would put this ahead of still even a lot of of her tracks. Just when we're surrounded by all of this, there's always going to be something that doesn't shine quite as bright. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. This one for me has always been that tongue-in-cheek happy ending to this album um, as the penultimate track. And it was sort of corny on purpose. I always felt like this was like what you least expect coming out of all these tracks if you take them as a cohesive narrative. And then you're like to this... Oh, I always I, I even jotted down. It's like a nice slow dance tune for them here. And he's found love again, if you will. Um, as far as the musicality of the song goes, though, it's really a neat composition. It's it's also is not my favorite, but more so because it's a tough a crowd. Like you said, you're surrounded by a lot of, of wildness here. There is some really cool 
instrumentation here that mimics each other, or I'm sorry, mimics mimics the vocals um, in this little mini hook that I always loved in between the first two verses. Um, and then I guess my favorite part of the song has to be when we get that hi-hat and then it just breaks down into this barbershop style, boom, boom, boom. I always dug that. That always added to this tongue-in-cheek, like, look at us, it's a happy ending happy ending kind of thing um before we go on to the next track yeah but um before we go to the next track i actually just thought of this i have a free live idea for weezer if anybody in their camp is listening um a mashup of this holiday and madonna's holiday oh shit i mean with all the 80s covers they did on a few years ago i think that would make perfect sense Oh man, that would, that would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be genius. I like that idea. Yeah. They could yeah. definitely do it. They could. And it would make more sense with this song than doing Green Day's Holiday. That one's um much angrier. <laughs> Green Day Holiday. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, they could easily do that, but no. No. Dumb. Madonna would be such a cool contrast and that would be the ultimate mashup. It would right fit there. better for this band, actually, believe it yeah. or not. So... <laughs> yeah. But... I think it's a good trio of songs we can call holiday. I think they're Madonna, Green Day, and Weezer. I think. There you go. There you go. I think it is. So, um, but yeah, now we are at the end of this album with an epic eight-minute closing track called Only in Dreams. Um, yeah, it starts off acoustic for like the first a significant portion, but then it just builds and builds and builds from there. And, uh, I mean, there's not much to say about this song if you haven't heard it. If you haven't heard it, just stop what you're doing and listening to it. And uh, and listen to it. I mean, to say, just pause the podcast, listen to the song, then come back to it. Um, I, I know, Corey, this is really, this is your song, especially. You love this one. I, this is up there in top tracks of my life. I, I uh... Hot tea take, this is Weezer's magnum opus. Straight up, fight me in the streets if you have another opinion. <laughs> because, I mean, we literally get it all here. The, this, I love this track so much, but the whole album is here in this track. Everything we felt throughout this, ex- more so musically, is here. And we have this eight minutes that, in my opinion, never feels wasted. I mean, the harmonics that are used inside these soft soft harmonics bring us super close to listen to the vocals. But this composition, man, it it builds, like you said, it builds and builds and builds almost like from a crawl, not so much tempo wise, but from a crawl to a full on sprint by the end of this. Um, I mean there's so much there's so much at 333 one of my favorite parts the composition brings us back to almost the starting point of the song but we get these awesome feedback swells and these guitars start screaming at us and then the you know the drums really take for me the center stage for most of the end of this this composition man they they really take us through this this trip uh with with their splashes and and the way that this is all set up it's a full-on genius experience i i don't know any other way to say it like this is weezer in their full glory but also remember please i beg you to remember that this is a one demo tape straight to album band that has as grown and were so hungry and then they finish off their debut album with an eight track magnum opus that's that's it i I don't know if you can hear it but i love this song (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i did when i so i saw them this past year and they didn't do the whole song live but in the middle uh rivers quote kind of did like a small acoustic set kind of and um he did the first part of this song the acoustic part so not the whole thing and I'm not going to lie, knowing that the whole thing exists, that is a bit of a letdown when you know the whole song exists. But at the same time, it is still one of Weezer's very best. Uh, They're very best, in your opinion. So you can't be mad at it being played, even if it wasn't the whole song. But 
I really wish it was. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I that would break my heart in all honesty if, you if didn't they didn't get, do the whole song if i i would just if i wasn't expecting it that I've, yeah. i don't know man the drums at the end of this song are something that people should hear live in the biggest theater ever and really <laughs> this, this is such a great song man i can't imagine this is an easy song to do live though either true True. In fairness yeah. to the band, I have to say, like, I think a lot of preparation would go into just this one song more than like any other song combined on your set list. So yeah. in that case, I can see why. But when you just get the tease of it, it's a bit of a letdown. But there's a yeah. chance he might just still do that portion. Uh, I don't know, though. But either way, um, I'm sure there'll be a great set from these boys that... um. We'll be hearing with plenty of songs off of this very classic album that we just finished discussing. I'm shocked it took us as long as it did to tackle this one on the show, but I'm I'm glad we did it now. I think it's better that we did it deeper into our run when we are uh, we're more in tune with what we're doing here than we were early on. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the perfect time to do it. I'm so glad we got the, to put this one down. Yeah, uh, I, I think I ha have the answer to this, but what's your grade for the album? <laughs> uh, Weezer, the blue album. Apparently just called Weezer, and I never knew that. This one is very close to a perfect album for me. There very rarely comes an album where I feel that a whole sound of a band is realized from start to finish and inside of that realization every single characteristic of them is is represented throughout the album and it's so unique it's such a i scream to put this in people's faces all the time and don't even worry because i know that they're going to enjoy it there's no way around the genius level of music inside of this album um the pacing is 100%. I've said that already. It never stops. And then it ends with a magnum opus. This album is an easy A plus for me. Barry, um, I'm going to be a bit lower and give it an A. Uh, mm. it, it's not quite as near and dear to my heart as it is yours. But yeah, I, I can't think of a skip on the album. These are all classic songs. And uh, I have no problem saying I think this is the best rock album of the 90s. Yeah, man, it's up there. It's up there. Easy decision for me. I can't think of another one that does it like this one. It's it's oof, it's a it's a tough battle. It's a battle between Weezer Blue Album and oh, Soundgarden, really. Oh, well, we haven't yeah. done Soundgarden yet, so that's to be determined in my book. <laughs> heard that. Heard that. I think the that. closest. The closest to this one for me is probably No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom, but that has some skips on it, I think, possibly. No, it it does. There's definitely stuff better there than elsewhere, but... We gotta do Soundgarden. I'm... Yeah. <laughs> we, we do now, apparently. Yeah, we do. Um, don't have much of a choice there, but, uh, well, I already know the answer to this, but you could just say it again. What's your favorite song? Believe it or not, Say It Ain't So is my favorite song on this whole entire album. It's, it has a special spot in my heart. And uh, I like straight nostalgia. Now, I'm not ripping any nostalgia off it. Say It Ain't So is usually the first song that I play every time I put this on. Oh, I, I thought the answer was so obvious. Only, uh, only in, in Holy in Dream stands alone by itself. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> All right, I'm going to be... What's you? What do you got? What do you got on this one? I I'm going to be the poppy cookie cutter. It's Buddy Holly. Ain't nothing wrong with that song. I mean, it references... Anything that references Mary Tyler Moore has a special <laughs> place in my heart. And the Happy Days video, too. I was yeah. once spot the Fonz for Halloween two years ago, so... Ooh, I can see that. So, <laughs> okay, I have I'll to... Fonz. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you were out that night, but I was the Fonz for Halloween. That was... <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but this year I'm going to be a more contemporary TV character. Oh, shit, I can't wait. 
Can't yeah. wait to see. Halloween 20s. We're not at Halloween yet, though. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, yeah, there we have it. Weezer Blue album. Um, so because I'll be um at Ocean City, Maryland for the Ocean's Calling Festival, I'm not really gonna have time to dive into an album for this week. So next week we're actually going to be doing a rerun of one of our earliest episodes, which is um a look at Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, Hard Promises. Uh, Mike Campbell will be playing with his band, The Dirty Knobs at Ocean's Calling. And I'm really excited to their set because I haven't seen him by himself. And uh, I'm really curious to see what they'll do. But uh, I hope you all enjoy an earlier look. It is going to be a bit rustier than what you hear now. But I think it was a good first early first effort from us for our second episode. So don't be too hard on us, but um, it feels like it was a million years ago. It really does. Wow, that's a good one. I, you know, oh, that's that's cool. It's a great <laughs> album. Yeah, man, we Either did a good way, job. Um, how many were we in on that? Was that, that was our the, second episode? Was, yeah. yeah, man. Heard but that. <laughs> uh, I think the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers did give us plenty to talk about, which was. <laughs> really helpful so i think that's um good but yeah we have done a lot since then but um then after that uh we're just um we've got some really cool stuff coming up these next couple of months but uh i want to kind of keep you on the edge of your seats and uh until we announce what our next one will be yeah man i'm excited either way there's a lot of really Fall's a great time for new music coming out, so you can expect some new music. That's all I will say to that. New music is the clue. <laughs> yeah, lots of it. But we're, we're going to go back before that. Before we do that, we're going to go back. So, uh, yeah, once again, thank you all for listening. We know the waiting will be the hardest part for a new episode, but we'll be back at it very soon and enjoy the rerun in the meantime. Peace!